Mianjin is a quarterly publication of writing that pushes the boundaries a little and embraces critical discussion. It tries to foster rigorous national conversations and it describes itself as articulating the Australian cultural moment. So it's perhaps fitting that the spring edition is 100% Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers for the first time in Mianjin's 83-year history. Eugenia Flynn is one of the guest editors for this special edition. She's the Vice-Chancellor's Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow in Writing and Publishing at the School of Media and Communication at RMIT. She writes essays, short stories and poems about truth, grief and devastation, race and gender. Eugenia Flynn, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thanks for having me. Now, you describe yourself as a Larrakia, Tiwi, Chinese, Malaysian and Muslim writer, researcher, creative practitioner and community organiser. So my first question before we get into Mianjin is where did you grow up and how did your multiple identities shape your worldview? So I grew up on Ghana country in Adelaide. My parents, I mean, my mum had migrated from Malaysia. Her parents before her had migrated from southern China to Malaysia. She migrated to Darwin. And my parents had half of our family up in Darwin and then moved to Adelaide before I was born. So I was born and raised on Ghana country. I put my identities and cultural perspectives in my bio because they completely inform my work. It's not something that I want to shy away from. And I think that that shapes a particular political worldview that comes from a lot of racialization and gendered racialization. And I bring that to my writing, to the editorial work that I've just done, to my research, all of those things. And when you write, what is the process about for you? Is it more for writing for yourself? Do you think of an audience? Are you writing for people like you? Are you writing to try and communicate your experience to people who might not be able to imagine standing in your shoes? Or is it a bit of a mix of all? What sort of inspires your writing and what's your motivation? Yeah, it's definitely a combo of of those things. So one of the things that I really wanted to do with my writing was to write for myself in lots of ways because I just never saw my perspective out there and started publishing, self-publishing my writing on a blog back when that was really popular, when um, the internet and social media were kind of democratising media. So people like me and you know, there were people like me who had been traditionally excluded from having that voice and having those platforms. So I wanted to write for me to see that perspective and discovered that I naturally found an audience, that there were other people like me who also wanted to hear those perspectives and those ideas, particularly thinking through ideas about race and racism and racialization in the context of Australia. So Yeah, I really kind of started out writing for me and found an audience. And I think when I go through the process of writing, I think about an ideal reader. And that came from, I was mentored by a friend, Dr. Shakira Hussain, who's an amazing academic and writer and researcher. And she told me to think about an ideal writer. And I often just think about particularly young black women who can be so disempowered and voices can be silenced. And I thought about them and how 
I wanted to strengthen them through my writing. So that's kind of the ideal reader that I think of. Which is why it's exciting to be talking to you about this project because, of course, it's something where you've created space for other writers. You're one of two guest editors for this very special uh, First Nations edition of Mianjin. How did the project come about and how did you approach the role? Um, myself and Bridget Coldwell-Bright were invited to be guest co-editors by um, Mianjin's, at that stage, newly minted editor, Esther Anatolidis. And she wanted to do an issue that was all First Nations. I don't think she had a specific idea about that, just a general idea, especially because we are in the year where a referendum at that stage was it going likely to be called, all of that sort of stuff. And we said, well, it's not really topical, although some of the pieces in the edition have ended up talking or touching on that topic. But we sort of took that and said, well, we want to work through our sense of how we would want to piece this together. So we really thought through, you know, wanting to have a mix of both established voices, but emerging voices, wanting to partly commission pieces and invite people to write, but also to have an open call out because there just may be people that we haven't considered or that we just don't know. And that really did generate some really great pieces in the edition. And I think we we really just wanted to work through Blackfellow ways of working. We felt that that was really important. We were really, really clear from kind of the beginning that what we were being offered was not necessarily a takeover. It was a, a sense of handing over power, but there were definitely limitations to that. And we were all very honest and open about what those limitations were from the very beginning. And so we wanted to work through Blackfellow ways of working. And one of those things was thinking through our theme of place and that grounding to country and our sovereignty and the sovereignty of our words and who we are as writers and editors. I want to come back to some of those really important themes, but I guess just as a preliminary question, um, from your perspective, why was it so important to have an edition that was all First Nations writers? What really attracted you about that idea? In my research life. I'm um, a scholar of, you know, Indigenous literature. And when you look across kind of the history of Australian literature and therefore its interactions within the way it conceptualises and the way that power is exerted within the Australian literary sector related to Indigenous literature, you know, there there are power dynamics at play. And Mianjin is one of if not the, oh, I can't remember, but it's one of the oldest literary journals in the country, oldest running. And that means something. You know, when we think about literature, people think of extremely high art through words, right? And so often Indigenous literature has really been excluded from that in lots of different ways. You know, I think in the conceptualization and the creation of this phenomena called Indigenous literature, there's been lots and lots of debates about, oh, oral storytelling and therefore thinking about the written word and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writing 
that is written down as that somehow a progression towards civilization. Sometimes I think about that, or this progression towards high art. So, Mianjin, I, I really love the idea of trying to. It's a little bit cheeky of me, but kind of trying to, you know, decenter that or to attack those power structures at the very site where that power exists. And what better place than this very old traditional established journal. And it hasn't had an all First Nations edition before. It's had some attempts or some um, editions that have focused on First Nations people and writing, but it's never been done in this way before. Well, it's a pretty important first. Mianjin's founding principle was for writers to reveal and clarify our life by showing it to us through a vision different from ours and deeper. So it sounds like this is a great opportunity for people to get a sense of that through First Nations writing. When someone opens up this edition of Mianjin, what are they going to find and what have been some of your favourite pieces you've included? Oh, I don't want to play favourites, but I think uh, it's hard, <laughs> hard to not pick to. favourites. <laughs> it is. It is really hard. And I think I think what they're going to find is, one, it's very beautifully put together. And we have artwork from Tony Albert. And we also have some personal um, photos. We have some images of artworks. And we have um, some illustrations that some of the writers themselves did. So it's very beautifully kind of laid out. So it's a beautiful kind of artifact in a way, you know, when you hold it in your hands, um, it's going to feel and look um, really beautiful in lots of different ways. And, you know, I think within within the edition, we have tried to, as I said before, have that mix between um, very emerging people. So for example, we have Philip Bell, who is from up north there in Queensland, and he's 70, 70 something years old, has never ever published before. And he actually uh, wrote a Facebook post and included three poems. I spoke to him on the phone and he talked about how he had written these poems just over the course of his life and he never thought he would do anything with them. But he made this post on Facebook and someone in his family, a younger person in his family, encouraged him to um, send it through, through the open call out. And we just had this conversation. We've ended up printing kind of all of the elements of his Facebook post in which he talks a little bit about his life and then presents the poems and then presents kind of a DNA test because he talks about identity within it. And I just think it's really beautiful that we can have someone who has such an incredible rich history and at their age not being published yet, but having written these three poems that we kind of pushed the the boundaries of literary categorization and we categorized it as memoir. So it's just kind of nice to have that kind of work in there. And then we have fiction work by Tony Birch and uh, Janine Lane, who are both incredibly well-established uh, fiction writers. And we have um, beautiful poetry by 10 writers. We actually worked with Black and White and they did, uh, we, we collaborated with them on the editing of those 10 poems. And we have, you know, some beautiful works in there, again, from, you know, all the way from emerging all the way through to established and, and sort of mid-career. But we've got 
poems by Ellen Van Nieuwen, for example, and Samuel Wagon Watson, but we also have poems by people like Graham Ackhurst and Mayor Hodge. And we have some really great kind of essay pieces. Gary Foley's done a State of the Nation piece. Um, We have a beautiful memoir-type essay from April Day, who's the daughter of Artie Tanya Day. We just have really great pieces that are wonderfully different from each other. So I think people will get a sense of the the breadth and the depth of First Nations writing. It sounds amazing. So the next thing I'm going to ask is, because there'll be people who've just heard that and will be saying, how do I get a copy of that? So how can people get a copy? You can physically buy a copy, hopefully in your bookshops, in wherever you're located across the country. So for example, here in Melbourne, it will be stocked at Readings. Um, And you can also order online. So um, Melbourne University Press are the ones that kind of uh, do the printing for Mianjin and you can order through their website. Now, you mentioned earlier that Mianjin is, you know, the oldest literary journal Um, and it was started back in 1940 in Brisbane and that's why the founder named it Mianjin and then, of course, it moved down to Melbourne. But I was interested, the founding editor, Clem Christensen, wrote that the important determinant of any culture is the spirit of place. And it struck me that in 1940, that was a very unusual thing for a non-Indigenous Australian to say. But it made me reflect, here you are, you've just co-edited the first all-Indigenous edition of this really important journal. How do you feel about the progress we've made since that time, particularly in terms of appreciation of First Nations place and the use and regeneration of our languages? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think that there has been lots of progress made in terms of the ready acceptance of place names that are, you know, wanting to switch from non-Indigenous European place names to Indigenous ones and using Indigenous languages. I think that there has been lots of uh, rapid change in the last kind of few years in particular, but I think that things can be really, really slow. I think that what we have seen is sometimes goodwill and then I attended a book launch yesterday for one of the writers actually that's in our edition, Melanie Sayward. She's got a debut novel out. And Tony Birch actually launched it and said some words at the beginning about when he started as a writer and going to writers' festivals and how often whenever he raised issues um, that Indigenous people were facing, how he often then ended up bluing with people in the audience, you know, having to defend his position or uh, the issues that he was trying to raise. And that wasn't that long ago. And so I think that, you know, we have had some very rapid, um, very rapid change recently, but I think there is still so much more work to do. And while there is kind of this ready acceptance, I think that often there's still a sense of, um, whitefellas wanting to appropriate, maybe that's not the right word, but kind of have a sense of ownership. So 
you have to give us these names, you know. Or if we think about, for example, Indigenous knowledges, so related to the environment, for example, that, you know, they have the right to know that you have to give us the answers. And I think, you know, we don't have to, um, we don't have to do that. I think that there's so much reclamation that has to happen first and that can happen within our communities. And I think that, you know, having supportive people, uh, supportive allies who understand that they don't necessarily own the processes, uh, that they can't determine the the timelines and that actually it's about supporting us to do these things on our own terms. Um, I think that that's going to be incredibly important moving forward. We've obviously been very focused on the issue of voice this year, but the other element of the pathway forward is truth-telling. From your perspective, what is the role of First Nations writers in the truth-telling process? Oh, well, you know, we actually have a piece in the edition. It's the one by Tony Birch that's actually called just simply truth. And, you know, First Nations writers and artists in general are at the forefront of telling our truths. If we look back across Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander literary history, those truths have been told for an extremely long time. So if we reconceptualise what Aboriginal literature is and we think about the very early texts that were written in English, quite often they were things like petitions. They were letters to government administration. So they were fighting for our rights from the very beginning through the written word because they understood that our ancestors understood that as a site of power where they could grapple with the colonisers in that arena. And then I think, you know, when we fast forward to 1964, when Ujuru who was then known as Kath Walker, publishes her book, that book was a book of poetry that was just filled with resistance. You know, often when I talk about this book, I also mention that it was filled with hope and love and lots of different things. But there was definitely an element of very strong resistance, which I think is is very characteristic of that time period as well. And then when we move through Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander literary history, you know, kind of the next really big moment is telling our life stories. And so there's so much life writing, particularly by Aboriginal women, that happens. You know, if we think about um, books like Take Your Love to Town, Rabbit Proof Fence, there's so many different incredible books that are life writing where people are telling their truths through the written word. So when we come to talking about issues like voice, truth and treaty, it's really hard for me to sit there and hear people talk through how we should tell the truth because I often think we've we've been telling the truth for over 200 years. It's just that white fellas haven't been listening to us. And so what purpose does it serve to tell the truth again, right? I think we have to think really carefully about that. I've been working with a group called the Ebony Institute. We've been thinking through those ideas about how you tell the truth in a way that achieves an actual outcome rather than just telling the truth again for the sake of telling the truth. And, you know, sometimes... When non-Indigenous people go to read Indigenous writing, and I've had this with my own work, that sometimes the elements that get picked out are the ones that are the most emotive or that I sometimes wonder if it's voyeuristic. 
And I think we have to be really careful in a, in a period, any period or any formal process that we go through with truth telling, particularly when it comes to our artists and our writers and people who have been at the forefront for such a long time, to tell our truths in ways that, as I said before, actually results in something. And secondly, that doesn't re-traumatise us because I think it definitely has the potential for that. One of the things that I'm struck in listening to you talk is that I've known you for many years now and I know that you've always been a contributor to national conversations. You've always got a very generous spirit and you're very optimistic. So what's your vision for a future Australia? What do you what would you like to see? Oh, that is so funny because I think my family would probably tell you that I'm not particularly optimistic, which is very funny. <laughs> I've always found I, you to be quite optimistic. I do. I like to see both sides. I think I, I think my my little superpower is probably that I can be particularly objective in lots of different ways. Even if I don't agree with the other side, I, I'm pretty good at being able to see that point of view and understand it with a, a bit of a measure of objectiveness. You know, in terms of my vision and thinking for the future, oh, that's such a big question. I think, you know, once upon a time, I really bought into the idea of nationhood and moving together um, as Australia. I think I'm probably a little bit more radical now. And I think that we need to rethink what Australia even means. I think that that's important for us because it's kind of trying to fix something that's broken and you're trying to put band-aids over the top and it's not quite working. So I think that going back a step and trying to find the source or the root problem and fixing those foundations is probably the most important thing. And I think there's different ways that we can do that. Don't just keep us on the same trajectory with some fixes and patches, but might actually set us in a different trajectory that has things like racial justice um, built into the very foundations, that has things like economic justice and anti-capitalist. We're living in a cost of living crisis and a housing crisis where people, people need to be able to live and be free economically. So, you know, I think if we can, you know, things like gender equity, if we can think about, I think, resetting the course of the nation, whatever shape or form that takes, I think that that's really important. That's Eugenia Flynn, Vice-Chancellor's Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow at RMIT and co-guest editor of Mianjin's first edition of Entirely First Nations Writers. 